Uh, was it a little easier this time, or David? <laughs> it was a little rough there that one Saturday afternoon. Um, as uh, most of us are aware by now, this past Friday was Valentine's Day. A day when love and romance and the uh, scent of flowers and chocolate had better be in the air. <laughs> right, ladies? Right, right, okay. Well, also, now as many of you are painfully aware, men are not always the sharpest tacks in the box. <laughs> and uh, when it, you know, for some of us, we're downright slow. We don't have that ability that David has to write and sing a song or something of that nature. So some of us are a little slow in the romance department. And perhaps one of the funniest stories that I ever heard was a story a friend told when he was dating a gal. He had been dating her for some time and things seemed to be moving in a rather uh, positive direction. And uh, as he always did, he would walk her to the door at the end of every date and, you know, he would say goodnight at that particular point. And now it's several dates into this relationship. And so he finally thinks it's the right time to go ahead and kiss her goodnight. And so as they walk to the door to kind of say their goodnights and that awkward moment of should I or shouldn't I, finally he just kind of reaches down and he, to be a gentleman, kisses her on the forehead. And he says, goodnight, I, I had a great time. To which she responded, as she puckered up, she said, a little lower, please. And he immediately responded, good night, I had a very good time. So, you know, he, he wasn't the sharpest guy, you know, but then again, some of us aren't quite that sharp either. Cute story I heard not too long ago about a couple that had bought a parrot, speaking of romance, and uh, bought a parrot from a rather colorful individual. A rather crusty individual, I guess, would be the best way to put it. And the parrot had a rather colorful and rather crusty vocabulary. And one of its favorite repeatable phrases was, let's neck. Walk, let's neck. Walk, let's neck. And so this bird would go off on this let's neck pattern for some time, and, and always to the embarrassment of its new owners. And uh, one particular night, they had some friends over from church. And the bird starts, let's neck, let's neck, let's neck. And one of the couples that was there said, you know, um, I, I understand that the pastor of our church has a parrot. And uh, maybe if you get that parrot together with the parrot that the pastor owns, that maybe the pastor's parrot can teach this bird, you know, maybe a couple of a new phrases or two. And uh, one of the pastor's parrot's favorite phrases, as you could imagine being a pastor's parrot, is let us pray. So they thought, well, we'll get this thing together. And so they got these two birds together, and they get the parrots. And the first thing, immediately, the crusty parrot starts, ah, let's neck. To which the pastor's bird immediately replies, my prayers have been answered. <laughs> so anyway, romance, romance. Well, so much for romance. Fortunately for Ruth, Fortunately for Ruth, Boaz is a lot quicker than some of us, and as we will see in our continuing study of the book of Ruth, both of their prayers, Ruth and Boaz, are about to be answered as, sort of, as, as uh, we see them about to go to the chapel. Going to the chapel, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And we read these words in this particular encounter as uh, we continue in understanding their relationship. We see in verse 1 of chapter 4, we read this. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they all sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elder elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and then I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, Oh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. 
redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today, and I have, bought from the hand, I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion, and also Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my, widow, my wife, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace, and you are all witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Epitaph and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through all the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this young woman. A wonderful encounter that we see. Finally, we see the work of redemption that's taken place. And I want to call to your attention several things. The first one that we have to look at is the meeting that takes place at the gate of the city. The meeting that takes place at the gate of the city. Now, if you remember the last time we were together, we left it where uh, Boaz, we saw Ruth and Boaz, and, and finally Ruth has gone to meet Boaz at, at the place that was called the threshing floor. It was a place where they did country line dancing, and, he, and she knew that he'd be there that Friday night. Now, thresh, threshing floor was a place that, that they went to take their, their grain products and that they would go and they would uh, separate the chaff from the, uh, from the grain. And uh, if you read, in, in, uh, for example, well, here, for example, look at, turn ahead to Psalm chapter 1 for a second, which is kind of interesting because I like the, the language that's used in a, in a way that helps them to illustrate and understand some of the things that were commonplace in their day. But in Psalm chapter 1, a very familiar psalm to many of us, it says, How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. He says, but the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And the picture that's used is a picture in an agricultural culture uh, where you look at, in this particular case, the threshing floor. They take all their product up to the top of a hill. And the reason that it's at the top of the hill is because that's where the wind is blowing. So they want to take advantage of the wind to help them in this process. And as we mentioned last time, the threshing floor was about 25 to 30 feet in diameter. And they would take their grain and they would put it on the ground, or, or actually the whole product itself. And then the oxen or, or, or whatever kind of animal, maybe a mule or whatever. And they would take it around and they would stomp on it. And they would separate the grain from the chaff. Or, and what they would do is they would pick it up and they would throw it up in the air and the wind on the top of this little hill would blow the chaff and it would separate it from that which was good, which was the pure product. And so God uses a picture of this to describe wicked people from righteous people and that there's a separation that takes place and over a period of time the, 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 the junk is separated from that which is good. And that which is good always bears fruit, which is interesting uh, when you consider the life of a Christian. Those who have come to claim Christ as their Savior, in the case of Ruth claiming Boaz as her Redeemer, those of us who have made that same claim to claim Christ as our Savior, the Bible says we will know that we're in a right relationship with God because we will ultimately start to produce fruit in our life. And those who may have made a verbal claim but never really come to know him, the difference will be there will be no fruit that comes out of that life and there will be a separation over a period of time from the pretenders, from the contenders, as I like to say, those who pretend that they have a relationship with God and those who truly do. And so as we look at this whole picture of the threshing floor, we see that the reason that they went there was because that's where Boaz would be and they had a regular schedule and they would take turns who would use the threshing floor and Naomi had done her homework and knew that Boaz would be there on this particular evening and sent her down there and said, look, you have been waiting and waiting and waiting and it's time for you to claim Boaz as your kinsman redeemer. And so that's what she does. And she goes down there, and it's a beautiful picture of a woman who makes a claim to, to this man to be her redeemer, which was her right to make that claim. And there was nothing immoral about it. There was nothing ugly about it. It was a beautiful picture of, of that which, uh, which uh, God had intended the redemption process to work out. 
And uh, so that's what she does. And this is where we, uh, we, we last see them in this particular position. And so if you remember at the end of chapter 3, we see that Ruth comes back and tells Naomi, yes, I have claimed him as my redeemer. And the wonderful words of Naomi were simply this, then it's time for you to relax and to wait upon him because the work of redemption is now in his hands. And so what we'll see here in chapter 4 is Boaz continuing the work of redemption, which is his work to complete. And she has nothing to do but to wait. And it's a wonderful picture. And I may add in a rather reverent way, and I know that sometimes you know, people take things out of context, but I want you to hear this very clearly because in a very reverent way, Boaz is a picture of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is anxiously waiting to be your kinsman redeemer. But he will not force himself upon anyone. He is a gentleman to the degree that Boaz was a gentleman. Boaz sat back and waited. He anxiously wanted to redeem Ruth. He loved Ruth with all of his heart. He would do anything as we'll see for Ruth. And yet it was Ruth's responsibility to claim him as her redeemer. And you know, the Bible says that Jesus is just as much a gentleman. In Revelation 3, chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. He stands at the door of every one of our lives and he knocks. And if anyone hears his voice and opens the door and welcomes him, and the Bible says in many different ways, but it boils down to claiming him as Redeemer, receiving him as Savior, accepting what he's done on the cross, if, if you would just open your heart to him and let him in and say, Lord, I want you to be my Redeemer, then the Bible says that he will enter your life and he will redeem you and buy you back from that which day you were lost, the day that Adam and Eve sinned. The day that Adam sinned, we were all lost. And he's going to buy you back. He wants to redeem you, but he doesn't force himself on anyone. And so what I like to say is I'm sharing with people this wonderful message of God's love for people. God loves people. And, and redemption is a, a product of love. But what I like to tell people is, is a very simple truth, and that's this. There will, no, there will be no one in hell that has not chosen to be there because they've rejected the love of God as he's reached out to them in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There is no one that's going to be forced to go to heaven. You either receive him or you don't. And you will be without excuse the day that you're judged before God and he separates you from him for all of eternity in a place that he originally prepared for Satan and his demons and it was never a place that was prepared for people. God never designed hell for any person to ever go there. But by our rejecting of his love, he has no choice because of justice and love to send you there if that's where you choose to go. Why in the world would you want to spend eternity in heaven with a God that you've rejected all the time that you're here on earth? It's just a logical thing if you stop and think about it. And there'll be no pain and suffering and sorrow in heaven. And if you don't want to be in the presence of God and you're going to suffer, that's not the place to be. So you'll suffer away from him. And so really this, this whole story of redemption and love is such a wonderful illustration of how much God loves people. And that's what we see in the life of Boaz and Ruth. So the first thing that we see in this, this meeting at the gate, we see the first words are wonderful words. It says that, you know, meanwhile, it says in the New, uh, New International Version, or I have here, it says meanwhile. Meanwhile what? Meanwhile, as, as, as she waits for this redemption to be, to be complete, then Boaz takes action. It says, now Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. Now it says that Boaz went up to the gate. Now you've got to stop and ask yourself a question. These are the kind of things that I ask as I go through it. Well, if the threshing floor was up on top of a hill, then how did he go from the threshing floor up to the gate of the city? Well, the natural answer is, is that the city height was actually higher than that of the threshing floor. So when he left there and said, you, you just wait, it's all in my hands, I'm going to go take care of this, he immediately left the threshing floor and he went up to the gates of the city. Now Bethlehem, as many cities in the Middle East, sit up on the hill. And the reason that it sits there was for protection and observation. You can see a great distance from the top of a hill. They had a wall around the city. They had gates where you would come in and they could see if any enemies were approaching the city. They were protected up on top of the hill. So Jerusalem, I mean Bethlehem sits up on top of this hill. So Boaz goes up to the city and he goes to the main gate. Now the main gate is the place where everything's happening. Now, you've got to remember, he's looking for this other closer redeemer in order to negotiate this deal with him, but he doesn't know how to get a hold of him because he can't call him on the phone, and he can't email him, and he doesn't have a website address, 
And uh, so he's got a problem with where do you find people in that particular culture? Well, the answer is very simple. The main gate of the city is where all the action is. Everyone that has any business to take care of is going to have to go through the main gates of the city. And so Boaz goes up there and it says that he sat down and guess what he did? He also had to wait. Now, I'm convinced of this. I think the longer that I live, the more I'm convinced of this truth, and that is this. God does his best work in my life and in your life when he makes us wait on him. As we wait, his will becomes very clear. As we wait, his direction becomes very clear. As we wait, we have two choices. Now, how many of you like to wait? Anybody? Nobody does. I don't know anybody that does. So I'm wondering now if, if Boaz waited like most of us waited. I don't think so, because it said he sat down. Have you ever seen in a waiting room, especially now with all the illness and stuff that's been going around, and you had to go to the doctors, and there's the waiting room or whatever, and you see people that are just pacing back and forth? Pacing back and forth. I, to me, that's a picture of most of us as we're waiting on God to give us direction in our life. When is he coming? When's he going to tell us what to do? What's going on here? Hey, and, and you're back and forth. You're driving everybody that's sitting, waiting, crazy. And, uh, and one of the things that, that I learned is, is when we're dealing with guys who are always negotiating professional, you know, professional athletes as they negotiate contracts, one of the things that is true of their life more so than most people I know is that they are constantly in God's waiting room. Because once the contract's up, then they don't know if they're going to be re-signed, if somebody else is going to sign them, if they're going to have to move somewhere else. And at the end of their contract, they, you know, they, it's a continual thing. I've got friends that every year don't know from one year to the next, after they sign a one-year contract, where they're going the following year. So I was laughing the other day, talking to one of my friends who was in God's waiting room once again. And I said, you know, you should be really familiar with the waiting room by now. You know, in the one year in the waiting room, he said, I am not going to re-sign with this team. I'm never coming back here again. It was the only team that made him an offer. And he was back there again. I said, now you're in the waiting room again. What did you learn? Well, I learned last time I was in the waiting room, never to say never. And I'm really open this time to wherever God leads us. And so he learned in the waiting room something he hadn't learned the waiting room year before. And so my, my counsel to him is the same as my counsel to myself and the counsel to you. And that is simply this. If you're in God's waiting room, Grab a magazine, sit down, and just relax. Now, you can pace back and forth, you can mumble and make everybody else miserable, or you can sit down and relax, and you can pray, and you can read a magazine, or you can do whatever, but just sit and wait, on, wait upon the Lord, because those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And that's really what it comes down to. So here's Boaz, and I'm sure he's as anxious as anybody, and he can't wait to get this thing resolved, and God says to him, you're just going to have to sit and wait. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how long he waited. He may have been there all day as he was waiting for this other guy. And he saw people coming and going, people coming in and out of the city, and they were going through the gate, and he's looking, he's sitting, he's looking, he's sitting, he's looking, he's sitting, he's looking, he's sitting, he's sitting, hey, yo, hey, hey, man, come here a minute. He finally sees him. And, he said, and, and so he knew that if he went there, he would ultimately see him. And he also knew if he went there that this legal transaction that was about to take place, which is exactly what it is, this was the place that it was done. In Genesis 19, it says that Lot sat in the gates of the city with the elders of the city. It was a place where legal transactions were conducted. It was a place where the elders and the judges sat. It was a place, it was like the, 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 uh, the courthouse of that day. So he knew that if he saw him, which he would, that if he could sit down and negotiate this with him, which he hoped, then they could legally make this transaction binding and get this resolved that day. So all of a sudden, here he comes. And he says, and it says, that, hey, you friend. That was a, a way of greeting. It would be like the, the living version saying, yo, dude. Um, you know, that type of thing. And so he saw him. He calls him over and says, hey, come on over here. And he says, I want you to sit down. And so here it is, the meeting at the gate. He says, sit here. And he goes and gets ten elders and says, you guys sit here too. We got some business to take care of. Let's all talk about it. And here we go. And that's basically what's happening here. Now, the manner in which he pre the, the problems presented is a wonderful, um, to me, it's a wonderful description of the art of negotiation. I mean, this is a wonderful description of a man who knows how to negotiate. 
And uh, as we look at this, Boaz is a man in verses 3 through 6 that I think really knows how to negotiate. And uh, we see here it says, Then he said to the closest relative, which was the, the friend, so to speak, that he called over, which was just a greeting. It doesn't mean they were friends or even knew each other. Just said, hey, would you come here? That's the guy I'm looking for. Says he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So there, there's several things that we look at in this negotiating that we see take place. I think Boaz is a pretty good businessman, and as we're going to find out, I think he's a pretty sharp negotiator as well. And the immediate reason that he mentions, this, mentions uh, having this particular meeting is that he's saying, hey, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, there's some confusion as to what it means she has to sell it. It may mean that she still has possession of it and because of her poverty she has to sell it in order to take care of herself. It may mean that at the death of Elimelech that, um, that it ended up being sold as it passed through uh, Malon or Chilion and, and as they died also then the land would then be sold. Uh, it may mean that it was already sold at one point in time. It may even mean that it was sold when they moved from Bethlehem to Moab to begin with when they were impoverished and, and they had no, nowhere else to turn. So I, it, it, there's a, it's not real clear what it means, but it does mean this that if this land is not redeemed, this land will be lost to Elimelech's family at least until the year of Jubilee. And it could be anywhere from one year from then to 49 years from then. And there's no way that we really can know because I'm not real sure what the timing is. You know, if they sold it before they went to Moab, um, then that was 10 years they lived there. So, and if it was right at the end of the year of Jubilee and the start of a new beginning, then it would be, you know, 39 years later. But whatever it is, the, the, the land's going to be lost and it has to be redeemed. And so as we look at all this, we see the first thing that he says is, hey, I want you to uh, redeem the land. Now, he doesn't mention anything about Ruth, which is really all he cares about. But he wants to keep that. That's kind of his trump card or ace in the hole. He doesn't want to talk about Ruth at all. See, he's a really sharp negotiator. He just wants to talk about the land. And so he lays this out, and that was the immediate reason for the meeting. Well, the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, we already saw, was to, uh, to buy back that which was lost, to maintain the name of the, the, uh, the tribe, or so to speak, or the family within that tribe of the, of the land that God had given them. Until the year of Jubilee, they would lose that land. And so the, the, the purpose of the responsibility of the redeemer was to buy back that land so the family didn't lose their land rights until the year of, uh, of Jubilee. So this is the, the responsibility the re, that a kinsman redeemer had, and it was something that took place on a regular basis. In fact, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 12, this was a common business transaction of the day. It says, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, uh, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you saying, Buy for yourself my field which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in court saying, uh, guarding against the word of the Lord, said to me, Buy my field, please, that this is at Anath, which is the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, the redemption is yours, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Anyway, just to give you an illustration that this is the kind of stuff that took place on a regular basis. And uh, so as we see the responsibility of this redeemer is to buy back the land, another responsibility was to make sure that a widow whose husband died not giving her any children would be redeemed so that she would have a son and that son would actually be raised in the name of his father or the possessor of the land so that the name that particular name wasn't lost for all of eternity either so there's a couple of issues that are involved here that we need to look at but this is how he negotiates and presents this whole deal now we see in, in verse 4 it says so I thought to inform you saying hey buy it before those who are sitting here before the elders of my people and you if you redeem it redeem it but if not tell me that I may know but there's no one but you to redeem it and I'm after you you know the thing I love about Boaz is the Bible says he was a man of integrity and character now think about this as we're gonna see Boaz is crazy about Ruth he wants Ruth to be his wife but he's got a major problem to overcome, and that is that there's a man who is next in line before him. He's second in line to be able to, to redeem her. So he's sweating bullets as he's presenting this case to this man who doesn't know her from anybody, nor maybe even cares about her, and he loves her and he wants to redeem her. And so this guy's standing in line, and he presents this case saying, well, you know what? I've got to do what's right before God. I love this because here's what he's saying. As badly as I want this to happen, 
and as, I, as badly as I want her to be my wife, there's one thing that I can't do, and that is I can't be a liar, and I can't be a deceiver, and I can't be a manipulator to where I can't do what's right before God in order to get what I really want, because God can't honor that. He, he takes a major chance, but really no chance at all, in allowing the process to, to work its way out by doing the right thing and saying, hey, you have the first right to redeem this property. Now, put yourself in Boaz's shoes for a second. Listen to what the guy says. He says, okay, I'll redeem it. Oh. Boaz probably had a heart attack. You will? Yeah, I'll redeem it. No problem. Now, Boaz, haven't had time to think this through, kicks in step two of the negotiation process. We had to get Boaz, and if we can just get a hold of Boaz, maybe he can work out this American Airlines situation. <laughs> but so what Boaz does, he goes like this. He says, oh, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. You see what he says? Oh, you'll buy the land back. Oh, but I forgot to mention something to you. I forgot to mention that if you buy the land back, then you also have to redeem Ruth. Did I mention that she's a Moabitess? Ruth the Moabitess. Yes, did I mention the Moabitess? The woman from Moab, the one that God says in Deuteronomy 23.3, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. That particular woman, that Ruth, that I mentioned, she's a Moabitess. I think she em he emphasized Moabitess. Now stop and think about this. Ruth has a great reputation, but there is a little baggage that's coming with Ruth. Every guy that ever came near him is dead. They're all dead. Elimelech, dead. Malon, her husband, dead. Chilion, her brother, brother-in-law, dead. If you want the land, you also have to have Ruth, the husband killer. But that's okay if you want to do that. And so Boaz is a pretty sharp guy. He says, hey, you know, don't forget, she kills people. Good reputation, wonderful woman, but hey, I just want to remind you, it's everything, land and the killer. <laughs> now, see, this guy is going to risk losing everything, but you know what's wonderful about love? Love doesn't care, because you're sitting there thinking, well, if he's so concerned that she's a Moabitess, then why does he want to redeem her? Because he doesn't care. He loves her. And he also knows that he's not breaking any of God's laws because she has already entered into the house of Israel when she married Malon. So that was his problem, and not, now it's not Boaz's problem. And so he's not doing anything wrong before God, and he loves her. Every time he sees her, he's buying her gifts. He can't wait to be around her. Come in my field. You're not going to go to anybody else's field. And here, here's 60 pounds of grain. Let me put it on your back. Come on. You know. <laughs> I was thinking about that Valentine's Day gift. I was going to buy my wife 60 pounds of flour. You know what I mean? I didn't know if it was going to go over or not. But it's just a thought. And it was, you know, we were going to play a little Ruth, a little Boaz this week, you know, and uh, go ahead and get her some grain. Um, but didn't think it was going to fly. What do you think? I don't think it was going to. All righty. But um, just a thought. Next Valentine's Day, hey, birthday coming up. How about some barley, a little wheat, 60 pounds. Be kind of nice. Um, so anyway, so that's what's happening here. And, and the, the, the reason that he does this is because this is going to be a legal transaction. This is going to be legal. It's going to be binding. Uh, and he's going to do it in a way. But look what he says. So th this guy says to him, he says, um, hey, I can't do that. Verse 6. Now, Boaz also is pretty sharp because what he did was he gave the guy a way out. He said, look, you have to redeem the land and you have to redeem that Ruth the Moabitess. But I just want to let you know, if you don't want to do it, I'll go ahead and do it for you. And so what he's done is, as a negotiator, it's a win-win for everybody. 
So this guy says, I can't do that. Well, this is the same guy a minute ago says, I'll do that. Well, now why can't he do that? Because I think that he was probably the same age as Elimelech. All his children were probably grown. They probably had a good feel for how the inheritance was going to fall into place. And now as a responsibility as a redeemer, not only did he have to buy back the land, but as he bought back Ruth and took, him as her, uh, uh, took her as his wife, then he was also responsible to, to raise up a child to uh, protect the name of Elimelech for all times. And now what it was going to do is cut into the inheritance of everybody else. And he's thinking, man, this is going to cause a mess in my family. And can you imagine now? you have grown kids and you're going to go marry this young gal and you're going to raise up a child in the name of somebody else and then she's going to sh this this boy's going to share in the inheritance that everybody else is already counting on it's like this is a mess how am i going to get out of this boss says hey remember i said i'll do it and this guy's like all right he says you redeem it for yourself that you may have my right of redemption for i cannot redeem it man has boaz been on a roller coaster ride or what just a second ago, I'll redeem it. Oh, how about the Moabitess? The killer? You're right. I can't do it. Yeah. Here, you do it. Okay, I'll do it. That's a good idea. I'll do it. Now stop and think about what it could have been. Ruth could have gone to this guy in public and said, redeem me. And he would have said to her the same thing. He would have said, no, I don't want to redeem you. Remember what she would have got to do? Take off his shoe and spit in his face. This guy's thinking, man, I could have got my face spit on today. This could have been a rather bad day. As it's turning out, this is a pretty good day after all. And so he's happy. Boaz is happy. Ruth will be happy. And you know Naomi will be really happy. And uh, this is what's going on. So this is the whole, the whole issue of redemption as we see it. And, and as we look at all this, you know, what's interesting to me as we look at all of this, as we've gone through it, you know, we've seen all these marvelous pictures of who Boaz represents. And you look at Ruth and her background and where she came from and how Boaz loves her despite the fact she comes from despicable people who come from an incestuous relationship, who murdered their own children to the false gods that, that they had made themselves. And yet he is willing to love her and redeem her. And what a wonderful picture that is of all of us as sinners before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I don't know what your background is, but trust me when I say this. It doesn't matter how good you think you were. The reality is, as God says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe your family didn't offer up brothers or sisters to some God that you made out in your backyard. But the reality of all of it is this, that the wages of sin is death. And all of us are sinners before God. Regardless of the degree that we think we place upon these, these acts of sin, God says that you are just as despicable as Ruth and her background. And yet Boaz, the picture of Jesus Christ, is willing to still redeem you if you would just claim him as your redeemer. If you would just accept what he did, by grace we've been saved through faith. Now we see this other redeemer who can't redeem at all. And as we look at this picture of this other redeemer who is also nameless, I can't help but think, as many people do, that this other redeemer who is nameless could never have redeemed at all. And it's a picture of what the Mosaic law was all about. And that is that the law was given as a standard so that people, first of all, would control evil in society. But what we need to recognize and understand is that the law in no shape or form could ever have redeemed that which was lost. The purpose of the law was to allow all of those who understood the law, and us in hindsight, it was, it was to allow all of us to understand that none of us will ever live a good enough life to please God. It's impossible. You know, I, I run into people all the time. I remember one Bible study, I was talking to somebody once, and they said, well, you know, well, I, um, you know, I live by the Ten Commandments. You hear people say this, you know, that's kind of their way of saying, well, I have a standard and I try to do good things and I try to live a certain way. And what was really interesting was you say, oh, you live by the Ten Commandments, that's great. What are they? <laughs> oh, I know there's ten of them. Killing's in there, lying's in there, stealing's in there, coveting something or other's in there. Uh, they don't even know. You say, but I live by them. Well, how do you live by them if you don't even know what they are? And then you ask him the next question and say, well, even if you knew what they are, and we open Exodus chapter 20 and we go through and we read them and say, hey, now that you even know what they are, do you, do you keep them? Do you do it? And here's always the answer. Well, I try to do my best. Now, here's a problem. I don't read anywhere in the Bible where God says, hey, all I want you to do is give it a good old try. 
you know, and, and, and in fact, I've heard it often said that God gave the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. And, and I like that, because that's what it comes down to. Some of us think, well, these are Ten Suggestions. Give it a shot. See how it works out. And if it works out, okay, great. If you can't do it, hey, you know what? Eight out of ten, not bad. Eighty percent, you get a B. <laughs> and, and so we, we think of things like this, and yet God says, hey, you know what? That's not going to work. And so this unnamed Redeemer couldn't redeem it all. And all that the law would do is it can't redeem it all either. But what the law was designed to do was to show these people that they could never live a good enough life to please God. And that's why God had in the sacrificial system things like the Day of Atonement where you would sacrifice a, a blood sacrifice for the remission of sins. Now don't forget that all of these things were a picture or a tutor that would lead people to understand what God was going to eventually do. So the law was a picture or a tutor that led to all of these things that we see. And as we see this whole story of Ruth and Boaz, it's a beautiful picture of what God was trying to do in the work as far as the work of redemption is concerned. And God's redemption of people is really a love issue. God loves people. And so we see all of this and we understand it. And one of the things that really stood out in my mind, I was thinking of all this thing about, you know, how Christ died for my sins and how, you know, basically he descended into hell for me and that he rose from the dead, proving that he could conquer sin. And when the, young, the rich young lawyer went to him once and said, hey, what do I got to do to be right with God? What do I got to do to get into heaven? And he said, hey, you know what you got to do? You got to do these things. And he says, but I've done all these things. And he said, oh, but there's one thing that you're still missing. You got to give it all up and follow me. And he says he turned and he walked away because he was one with much possessions. And the point of all of it was, even though this guy did and he lived a morally pure life before God, he still knew in his heart that there was something yet he needed to do to be right with God. And there was nothing we can do other than to claim Christ as our Redeemer. And the thing I love about it, you say, well, man, why did Jesus go through all of this? And why did he uh, go through all the suffering that he did? And I was reminded in Hebrews chapter 12, a, a chapter that, that I love because it follows up on, on the Hall of Faith chapter in chapter 11. But we read this, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, everybody in, the, in past history that accepted what God did by faith and faith alone, and they were made right with God because they believed God. There was assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. When God told Abraham to go, he just went. When God tells you and I to claim Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, as our kinsman Redeemer, by faith we step out and say, that's what I want to do. I want to claim him in faith. And that's all that it comes down to. It's by grace we've been saved, what? Through the agency of faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, so none of us can boast. It's not a matter of works or doing something that's better than somebody else. It's claiming him as Redeemer. And in Hebrews 12, we said, Since therefore we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And I believe the sin that's talking about here is the sin of unbelief, of disbelieving God, of not believing what he says about just stepping out and trusting him by faith. It says, And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, listen, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for what? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus put up with all of that abuse? Why did he put up with the hostility of, of sinners who wanted to kill him? Why did he do all of that? The Bible says because of the joy that was set before him. What joy is that? The joy of redemption. The joy of buying us back from that which was lost, to bringing us into a right relationship with God. He was spit on. He was punched. He was abused verbally and physically. He was given a cross and thrown on his back and marched down the middle of the streets of the city so that people could mock him and make fun of him. When he was blindfolded and beaten, the soldier said, hey, if you're God and you know everything, why don't you tell us who just punched you? You know everything. As he was mocked and he was cursed and spit upon and as he dragged that cross up the street and he went to the hill to be crucified and as he was crucified on that cross and the soldiers stood there and laughed and they gambled away his garments, Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Why did he put up with all of that? For the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured all of that and he despised all of that shame. Because he knew one day that that redemption work would be done once he was obedient to his father and he hung on that cross and he said, Thy will be done and not mine. And as he hung there, he realized that it was finished. 
What was finished? Everything that God had put into motion from time past through all of eternity, the redemptive work of God in the person of Jesus Christ, it was done that moment as he hung on the cross. What a wonderful, beautiful story that is of redemption. And this verse says, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sat down, meaning that it was finished. The work that he set out to do was done. It's over. There's nothing else that anybody can do. You can't add to what Jesus did. You can't do anything more than what he's already done. You can't give away enough money. You can't go to church enough. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't give up enough stuff for Lent or whatever else. You can't do enough because what Jesus did was all of it. And we defame what he's done and, and we violate what he's done when we think that we somehow can add to it to finish it off. It was finished. That's a beautiful picture of redemption as we see it. And that's the manner that he presented as we look at this. And now as, as we see what takes place here back in the book of Ruth, we realize that, you know what, there's, there's a method of redemption that takes place, which I thought is kind of interesting, you know, just from a cultural standpoint and trying to understand what was going on. But the Bible says that from a cultural standpoint in verses 7 and 8, it says, Now in earlier times uh, there was a custom concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A, a man removed the sandal and he gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relatives of Deboas, hey, buy it for yourself, and he took off his shoe. So he, he said, hey, you know what? Hey, great, here we go. You want to do it? Here, you can do it. Here, here is right here. It's yours right here. Here it is. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is that what it was doing was it was symbolizing that this is now your land and you can walk on it and you can do anything you want with it. Now, the problem with this kind of culture uh, or this kind of custom in our culture today is that it's really hard to put this on microfish. You know, and uh, so what we do is we just have a contract or you have uh, a marriage certificate or license. And really, that's all that this is. What they're doing is they're, they're making a formal declaration before all these witnesses that, hey, today we have entered into a legal agreement. You are all witnesses. You've signed the contract. You've taken the sandal. It's now yours. You go home with it. You can walk on the land. You do whatever you want with it. And so basically, what was interesting is I'm sure there was some lawyer there somewhere in the crowd that was trying to figure out some way where people really didn't see him pass the sandal to the other person you know it wasn't really the intent of the two parties to enter into such a binding agreement but um, anyway uh, but I think that it was and as we see that it actually was so when we look at all this and you see the method of redemption was they just passed a shoe that is our marriage license or, or certificate or contract or whatever that's why when people get married today they have a, a marriage license and that's the whole purpose of it and it's also interesting to note that um, after this guy gives them a sandal we never hear from him again. I think that's fascinating. I also think it's fascinating too that we never hear uh, of uh, Ruth's sister-in-law, Orpah, again either. She disappears off the pages of Scripture. He disappears off the pages of Scripture. But Boaz doesn't, as we'll see, and neither does Ruth. And it's a wonderful picture of what this is all about. So basically, he buys himself a marriage. And in verses 9 through 12, we read this as it concludes, but it says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all of the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and also Malon. Moreover, I have a, moreover, I like that, see? Hey, not only do I buy the land, but hey, the cool thing about it all is this. I also got me Ruth the Moabitess says, the widow of Malon to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace and you are witnesses today. Can I just share something with you that really stuck out as I was going through this? Genuine love and genuine commitment is always declared in an open and public manner. You ever see people that are dating for a long period of time, but there's that thing about, well, I'm not sure I want to make that commitment, usually talking about getting married. And this is one of the things that's such a crock about people who live together. Let me just explain something very clearly. Genuine commitment and genuine love is always expressed in a public manner. That's why Jesus said this, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven. There's no such thing as a secret service Christian or somebody working undercover for the Lord. Shh, don't tell anybody, I'm working undercover. 
find, find me something to validate that personal philosophy of ministry. Hey, the bottom line is this. If you love someone, you can't wait to let everybody know. You can't wait to stand up before your friends and your family and make a public declaration that, hey man, this is the gal that I want to be with the rest of my life. This is the guy that I want to be with the rest of my life. And through, hey, bad times and good times, hey, let it roll, baby. We are committed to each other and we're going to make this thing work. That's the whole purpose of all of it. And you don't tell me that Boaz wasn't shouting when he said, hey, this is a done deal. It's done. I got the sandal. Ugh. I got the sandal. But what's even more important than that, I got Ruth, the Moabitess, and she's my wife. And I can't wait till everybody knows it, and I can't wait to tell everybody this is one big happy day. Oh, happy day. Everybody's saying. But, but that's what's going on here. And that's what we need to understand and recognize. And unfortunately for many of us, we don't see that and we don't sense that. And, and what I love about this too is that, hey, listen to me. You know what? Boaz did the chasing. Now, this is going to sound archaic from a young guy, but let me tell you something that I can't get out of my mind, and that's this. It is the responsibility of men to pursue women and women to respond to the love of a man. It is not the responsibility of women to pursue men. God made women to be responders to the initiative that men take to reach out and to love them. The Bible says that husbands are to love their wives. God never ever commands a woman to love her husband. You know why? Because she will if he does first. And we need to recognize and understand that. Boaz took the initiative. He told Ruth to sit down and wait, that I'll take care of this. It's my responsibility. It's my job. It's my work. I will do the work of redemption. And you just sit and you wait and I will take care of you and I will protect you and I will cherish you and I will love you and I will provide for you. And I'm so sick of a culture that is pushing women into a position of becoming men. It is not biblical and it's wrong before God. Men are men and women are women and let's not buy into this feminism. And it was feminists really that created this mess that we're in. They're all women who want to become guys. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately it doesn't make for a real good marriage. You know, a woman who wants to be a guy and a guy who's trying to just be a guy because we're pretty slow as it is and we get all confused when you start trying to do what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> And then when we don't do it, you say, hey, you know what? Hey, why don't you do it? I'm doing it. Well, if you'd stop doing it, maybe I'd know what to do. So you stop doing that, and I'll start doing what I'm supposed to do. And then I can be the guy, and you can be the woman. Hey, that's what I thought we were doing when we got married. So it works for all of us. But um, anyway. Anyway. So there you go. So that's kind of the way it is. Um, where are we going from here? Okie dokie. Well, let's finish up. All right, here we go. Last couple of verses. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. And you know what, too? If you ever go to a wedding, I like to say this at weddings, but let me just kind of share this in this group setting that we're in today. If you ever go to a wedding and you're a witness of this, these vows and this commitment that people make to one another, do yourself a big favor and fulfill that role of a witness later on when they're having marital problems. And you know what you're supposed to do is tell them, You know what? Hey, I never thought it was going to work out. What kind, of, what kind of witness is that? You know, you hear that kind of stuff all the time. You know, I never thought it was the right thing for you to do. He was a jerk then. He's still a jerk now. I don't know what took you so long to see it. We all saw it. Hey, thank you for that help and encouragement. Hey, you were there as witnesses to the commitment they made each other, whether you like them or not, whether you would care to marry that person or not. That doesn't make any difference. They said, we are going to marry each other. We're going to stay committed for all of time and all of eternity. We're through good times, bad times, rich times, poor times, sick times, healthy times. We're going to do that. Now, when they're having a problem later, you just say, hey, listen, I think I, I remember I was there that day, and you said you committed to each other through all of this stuff, and you're just going through one of those bad periods, and I'm just here as a witness to remind you that you need to honor your commitment. Wouldn't that be wonderful to have friends who reminded us of the commitment that we made the day that we got married? And man, you know what? Nobody needs you to tell that person they made a mistake. They're already thinking that they made a mistake. You need to convince them that they didn't make a mistake, and it's just a little glitch in the road. And when you're married forever, what's a couple of bad days, months, or years? <laughs> right? You got to take the whole package into consideration. All right. And may the Lord make the woman who is coming to your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. May you achieve wealth and become famous in Bethlehem. And they didn't even have a clue what they were saying because these people would be remembered for all of time and all of eternity. And it was through, and, and let me conclude on this. The whole purpose of redemption as we see it, there's a, there's a couple things I want to mention. 
You say, why did God become? A, why did God send His Son in the person of Jesus Christ to become a man and walk in the face of the earth? One thing is because a redeemer, if he's going to be a kinsman redeemer, had to be a blood relative. Isn't that interesting? And it's important as we look next week into the line of how Jesus Christ would come into the world and he'll come into the world through this downstream from this union that's going to take place between Boaz and Ruth. But if Jesus is going to redeem us, then he has to be a blood redeemer. The second thing is, is that he must be willing to redeem willingly. And what a wonderful picture that we have in Boaz. Boaz wasn't forced. The one who was forced said, I'm not going to do it. But the one who volunteered said, I can't wait to do it. You know, Jesus gave his life willingly. Nobody took his life. Nobody killed him, as we hear people say so often. If you remember, when Jesus was arrested, he said, hey, if I wanted to call legions of angels from heaven, I could call them to be at my side. And the point he was making to them was, is that I can get all the help that I need. And besides, I don't need any help at all. I created the universe with a single word, and I stopped storms with a single word, and I've raised dead by a single word. And you know what? You think you're going to arrest me and haul me away if I didn't want you to do it? You're stinking nuts get away from me and they all would have dropped over and turned into stones or something whatever he wanted to do but the point was he gave himself willingly and he was a willing redeemer and he also had to possess the ability to redeem and the redeemer had to be free himself and in the case of Jesus Christ the Bible says and in him there was no sin he wasn't obstructive from being able to do this in him there was no sin he was a willing redeemer and he was willing to pay the price and now when I hear the words of John 3:16, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would claim him as their kinsman redeemer, to them he gave the right to become children of God in John 1:12, to those who believe in his name, to, them, to those who believe in him, that they should have eternal life and that they should not perish. The work of redemption is a work of extreme love by a God who's done everything to reach us and to buy us back. And always left in our hands is the responsibility to reach back and to claim His love and to claim Him as Redeemer. Folks, if you've never done it, I don't know what you're waiting for because there's nothing easier in the world than to reach out and say thank you to someone who wants to love you. You lay aside your pride, you lay aside everything you think and that you've heard in the past, and you say, Jesus, I want to claim you as my Redeemer. And then I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait, because he who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, and there's nothing more that I need to do. The work of redemption is yours. God, I just thank you for it. Father, we just thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this story of redemption. We thank you for the picture of Boaz as a picture of Jesus Christ a willing redeemer who paid the ultimate price, was willing to risk everything and be despised in public because of his love for this woman, Ruth. And God, what a wonderful picture it is of your love for us. God, I just pray that those who are hearing these words maybe for the first time and have never reached out and claimed the Lord Jesus as redeemer, that they'd do that now. That they'd understand that the work of redemption is all in his hands. It was finished on, his, on the cross. And as he sat down at the right hand of the Father, we realize that his redemptive work is done. And we just thank you and praise you that you would love us and you would call us out of a despicable past to have fellowship once more with you. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.